one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And it remains the greatest nation on God's green earth, despite of our vulnerability to a a potential major war against China, for which, according to some defense experts, we are woefully unprepared, or at least underprepared. Captain William Toady, who is a reserve, uh, who is a retired naval officer, has more than 40 years of experience in defense, uh, also more recently as a defense uh, CEO. His book is called From uh, CO to CEO, A Practical Guide for Transitioning from Military to Industry Leadership. He writes in The Hill the, uh, the following striking sentence, which bears intense discussion. The sentence says that today's Navy is half the size it should be for a war in the Pacific. While many of our ships are highly capable, the number of our ships is so small as to neutralize that advantage. No ship, regardless of capability, can be in two places at one time. Uh, Captain Toady, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Really happy to be here. Okay. Your point about America's lack of preparation against a potential war with China in the Pacific, when you talk about us being unprepared and too few ships, does that include potential help from uh, Japan, South Korea, Philippines, Australia, other other friendly allied powers in that region? It does, Michael. The problem, there's two problems with the countries you mentioned. Problem number one is that, you know, they don't, can't provide much. They can't contribute much to a major war with China. Problem number two is, of course, they're neighbors to China. And we can't be absolutely certain that facing the possibility that China defeats the United States, they would elect to stay with us for that fight. And the more um, risky a conflict between the United States and China looks, I think the higher risk would be that some of our allies would abandon us when we need them. And uh, there also would be would be vulnerable to Chinese uh, nuclear strikes too, wouldn't they? Nuclear and non-nuclear strike, hypersonic missiles and things like that. So even if you don't want to believe that the conflict would go nuclear, and I hope it certainly would not, the the non-nuclear threat that China poses is substantial. And I think um, cities like Tokyo and Seoul and, you know, even Sydney might be greatly threatened by some of China's non-nuclear capability. Okay. Uh... When, when you talk about our Navy being unprepared and simply having too few ships, uh, does China uh, have a more battle-ready craft on hand in the Pacific than we do? They do. They passed us in size just recently, not too long ago, and they're getting better in capability as well. But the really scary part is that, you know, the number of sh- 
We used to have 50 shipyards that could build Navy, that could contribute to the Navy fight. We now have just 20, and all of them are very old. China has a single shipyard that has more capacity than all of our shipyards combined. So not only are they starting with more ship ships, they have a capacity to build at a much greater rate than we do. You, you say in your piece, and it's fascinating, and I know because I've written about this chapter of history, I know you're entirely correct. Uh, it is not true that uh, the United States was utterly unprepared for confronting Japan before Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was a disaster and it mobilized us, but you, you write about the Naval Expansion Act of 1938 that the Democratic president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and his allies in Congress had to fight for where they were already in the process of expanding our Navy uh, before disaster struck and we were attacked by the Japanese Empire. Is, the, um, is there anything comparable going on with the expansion of our Navy now? No. That's ah. the sad part. So, you know, that, that's true. They saw that a threat was coming, and rather than just doing what politicians do, talking about it, they actually did something about it more than three years before Pearl Harbor's attack. We started two new classes of aircraft carriers and two new classes of battleships, all of which proved pivotal when we finally were attacked. Today, um, you know, this started actually during the Clinton administration with what he referred to as the peace dividend, where we decommissioned perfectly good ships halfway through their lives because, of course, the Soviets were no longer a threat and the Chinese were our friends. So, of course, we would never need a Navy again. Well, history has turned out different than we thought it would. And now we're in a position where we decommissioned a large number of ships and we're not building enough to make up for that now that we realize oh, those threats did reemerge. So we find ourselves poorly prepared for a crisis that everybody says is, if not likely, we need to be prepared for. And that crisis would be a uh, Chinese um, move to to uh, uh, basically invade and conquer Taiwan. Is that right? That's correct. And and you know, the, the Taiwanese they have a fairly formidable air force and some navy, but uh, mm -hmm. they would be no match for the Chinese, the People's Army. Not at all. No. What you know when I was on active duty say 20 years ago when I was CEO of a submarine, we laughingly referred to a Chinese invasion of Taiwan as the million man swim because China had so few um, ships, amphibious assault ships that they could use to invade Taiwan. So there was some ability to defeat that raid. China realized they had a problem. And they just didn't sit idle. They started building the capability they need to make the threat real, as well as anti-air and, and you know, missile strike capability that would risk our particularly our shore bases in the region. There's also a, a problem here. I mean, I, I, I understand that South Korea... Um, 
would probably be able to at least hold off uh, another North Korean invasion I, when I'm referring to the vast one in nine, 1950. But uh, the the idea that um, uh, South Korea and North Korea fighting could also lead to a broader war involving China, that is a real possibility too, is it not? If you believe that the North Koreans are as um, detached from reality uh, as I do, then it's not inconceivable that if a war developed between China and the United States and the North Koreans would take that opportunity to, you know, take South to attack South Korea. The South Korea would likely prevail in such a war, but the problem is North Korea has so much artillery that they could easily destroy, utterly destroy Seoul in the process of that conflict. And that's so close to the uh, armistice line. Uh, uh, Captain Toady, I hope you will stay with us. You raise another point about American personnel. We ultimately had 16 million people under arms in World War II. Could we do that again through recruitment and the draft? You say, probably not. What does that mean for the United States in the future? And what's the problem here? We will get to more with a, a very important message for all Americans from Captain William Toady coming up on the MedVet Show. From politics to pop culture and from coast to coast, this is the Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved Show, a privilege to be speaking to Captain William Toady, who is a retired Navy officer, a former Pacific Commodore, and a former operational planner. He is the author of the 2022 book From CEO, Commanding Officer, to CEO, uh, Chief Executive Officer. And he co-hosts a uh, Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. Um, one of the striking things among many that uh, you have in your piece in, in The Hill about uh, America, where's the sleeping giant now? And it's one of those things, it's hard to believe, but it's true. People can check it out. And by the way, I hope people will go to michaelmedved.com. We're going to link your article right up there. You report that... Um, a 2020 Pentagon study indicates that 77% of Americans ages 17 to 24 would not qualify for military service because they're overweight, they have a history of drug use, or they have mental or physical disabilities. Uh, does that leave us... Uh, terribly exposed to the superior person power of uh, the Chinese government. As you say, it's it's unlikely that 77% of uh, a Chinese potential recruits are, are overweight or drug users or disabled. It does indeed. Um, the more, I guess, the more alarming bit of that statistic is that 44% of American young people were disqualified for multiple reasons. So they had a combination of obesity and drugs or obesity 
and misconduct, you know, jail time or something like that. So it wasn't a simple issue of, well, if they're a little overweight, we can give them a waiver because they were disqualified for multiple people. And yeah, the Chinese are starting with a population of a billion people. So whether you want to measure the risk from a standpoint of the number of sailors they can bring to bear or the number of ships they could build relative to ours, you know, things have changed for us. Hence my title. Uh, you know, my title derives from the, say, it's the quote that Yamamoto utters in the movie Tora, 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 I fear we've awakened a sleeping giant. And my premise of the article is, who's the sleeping giant now? It's China, not us. And that's, we should be very, very worried, worried about that. And uh, what about the idea that uh, America has one um, major advantage over China strategically, which is our nuclear forces? We have, we have more and more reliable uh, nuclear weapons, don't we? We do. Um, but we also you know, adhere to the no-first-use policy, at least um, de facto, whether we'll admit it or not. So unless China initiates the use of nuclear weapons, we are unlikely to do so. That means that we can't rely on nuclear weapons if we get in a dire situation in a conventional war. So what needs to be done? I mean, clearly there needs to be a great deal of shipbuilding. And also uh, what you're mm -hmm. talking about is building up the capacity for shipbuilding. Because, yes, we... We created a, an unbelievable volume. Henry Kaiser was famous for this, an unbelievable volume of, of craft uh, that during the war to respond to Pearl Harbor and immediately before Pearl Harbor. But uh, should we begin uh, this kind of expansion of our naval resources immediately? One of two things need to happen. Either we stop saying that we're gonna defend Taiwan and walk away from national policy that was put into effect at the 1979 Taiwan Relations Act, or we allow ourselves to pose a credible threat to China and reverse the worsening situation year by year that we find ourselves in. That's one thing. The second thing is we need to admit so we have a problem with America's youth. And if we're going to defend the country, we need to, to address that problem and stop pretending that it's unmentionable, that, you know, we can't say these things that, that we need to be saying. Um, we used to have this untapped resource of women. If, if men are increasingly disqualified, well, we can maybe use women for a lot of the roles in the military that we didn't use them. My own submarine community is an example of that. We had to use women because we couldn't crew submarines with all-male crews anymore. And that, that resource is tapped out. We're using them about as much as we can. So we have to address this problem holistically as a nation. And what kind of steps do you think would be necessary to avoid this nightmare situation of 77% of young people being unfit to serve? The, it, it's going to take some very, very hard choices. And one example of that is 
some kind of national service would would help to and you know many countries do this already we're not one of them but to help young people understand what it takes what what their their civic responsibilities are for defending the country in you know in 1941 as you well know michael nobody questioned the need they and people were way more capable in 41 than they are today physically at least uh, people were willing to sign up. There was a little bit of that after 9-11, but nowhere near what we would need if we faced a major confrontation with a major power. Yeah, my, my dad was um, in the Navy the day after he graduated from high school in 1944. And mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a different world today. And I I know that there are a number of American leaders, John McCain was one of them, who've talked about the kind of national service in places like Switzerland, not not to mention Israel. There is that idea of... Korea. And Korea, Mm -hmm. right. Do they have a national service in Taiwan? Um, They do not. They do not. You know, that's one of those things where we should... um, Highly encouraged. There's, there's certain things I think that, that we could we could be effective and highly encouraging, um, and that might be one of them. You have to be delicate with the Taiwanese because you don't want to give them, unfortunately, too much confidence that we're going to do whatever's necessary to come to their aid, um, lest they become a little bit too um, aggressive and provocative in how they deal with China. They see that we're going to rescue them regardless. Yeah, and there's this other problem of uh, half a million men and 1,800 tanks and 700 aircraft that are supposed to be massing for a new invasion of Ukraine. The uh, temptation um, for China to do something crazy and destructive while America is... I'm addicted to the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, I think that what we just heard from Captain Toady, and we will have him back soon because I think his message is profoundly important. When there are Republicans, heaven help us, Republicans, Republicans, let me repeat that again, and it's not a small number, it's 20 to 30 of them in the House of Representatives who are serious about trying to negotiate spending cuts in our defense budget. And uh, yes, also in our support for Ukraine at a moment of maximum danger to that Democratic ally that has fought so nobly for the principles that we're supposed to believe in as a country. And uh, the... The idea that uh, we pick this particular moment to try to cut down on our defense expenditures. I mean, one of the things that won the Cold War, that President Reagan did right, that also led to his landslide victory in 1984, he had worse polling at uh, this point in uh, uh, 1983. Yes, he did. Worse polling than Biden. 
And he turned it around and he ended up carrying 49 states. And one of the reasons was a military buildup that was decisive, that was unwavering, and that was profoundly important. And and now, basically, we look at the threat of the balloon that was uh, just sailing across the United States. There's, a, there's an editorial in the journal, and it writes, Beijing is complaining about the U.S. decision to shoot down the balloon, though it isn't cooperating with U.S. attempts to engage on the issue. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's counterpart in China won't take Mr. Austin's call. This isn't the behavior of a great power that wants better relations. All the more... Uh, All the more so given that China's explanation that this was merely a weather balloon that took a wrong turn at the Aleutian Islands has imploded under scrutiny and more disclosures. The Pentagon said yesterday that the balloon is part of a global fleet China has been operating for several years. Such red zeppelins have been spotted over at least five continents, including countries in Europe, Southern, Southern Asia, and South America. The Defense Department says it's uh, confident that the latest balloon was launched to get a close-up peek at America's strategic sites, perhaps including intercontinental ballistic missile bases in Montana. U.S. officials say at least four other balloons have surfaced over U.S. soil in recent years, though, shockingly, we only detected them after the fact. Civilian Trump officials were never informed. The Biden administration has said that one reason that it didn't shoot down the object earlier as it crossed uh, Alaska's wide-open spaces was so U.S. intelligence could learn more about the balloon's operation. Press reports say U.S. military assets accompanied the balloon on its final float. Americans are rightly absorbed with the episode, and it's a teaching moment about Chinese ambitions and U.S. vulnerability, which is what we were just talking about. A U.S. general said earlier this week that the blimp had a payload the size of a regional jetliner. Was it capable of carrying electromagnetic weapons or blowing up on command? The administration is also now leaking to the press that the balloon could loiter on sites longer than satellites on low Earth orbit. After insisting for days the balloon presented no advantage over China's other intelligence methods. Was it picking up signals that satellites can't? Was it sending real-time data back to its overlords at Beijing? Navy divers, reports the journal, are now salvaging debris from the balloon, and the U.S. ought to put it on the display for the world to see, complete with experts explaining what it reveals about what China was up to. Put it all on stage, not merely in a Pentagon basement. The administration may fear a public airing of the spy balloon fleet could inflame Beijing and preclude a calmer relationship. But the opposite may be true. The real worry should be that the incident blows over without consequences. And China's war hawks conclude that such provocations are manageable risks. The Biden crowd is no doubt eager to move on from the balloon affair. But the stakes are larger, writes the journal, than their own embarrassment. Let's show the world the truth 
about how China thinks it can act with impunity. Could uh, could that be uh, important for the future? Of course it's important for the future. And, uh, of course, with uh, all of the concerns we have elsewhere, it's always a good thing to see some effort to address one of the problems that uh, Captain Toady was just talking about, which is the fact that we have so many young people who aren't even qualified to serve in the military, even if they wanted to. And part of the change that is necessary is uh, going to be a uh, improvements in our education system. And right now, the school choice movement is sweeping the country. Uh, and it's sweeping the country under the leadership of Republican governors. One of them spoke very dramatically about a new school choice proposal that she is introducing, clip three. But we can't forget our children first, and most important, our parents. As a mom, I will never allow our state to sideline our parents in students' education. That starts by ensuring parents have a choice to send their kid to the school that best meets their individual needs, no matter where they live and no matter what their income. Our new Education Freedom Account allows parents to enroll their kids in whatever school is most appropriate for their family, whether it be public, private, parochial, or homeschool. We're rolling out this program for our most at-risk families first, and within three years, it'll be available to every family in Arkansas. Okay, of course, she gave it away. I was leaving it uh, for you to identify the voice. That, of course, was Sarah Huckabee Sanders who gave the response to President Biden's State of the Union address. Uh, she is the new and very activist governor of Arkansas, particularly concentrating on these education issues. Uh, look, there there is so much going on and uh, so much of consequence politically that is happening every day. It's, uh, um, by the way, basically important that you have both parties actually exchanging ideas a little bit and maybe finding points that they have in common to make some progress for our country and uh, not simply to use the idea of bipartisanship as a campaign stunt or as a campaign theme, but actually to mean it. And uh, coming up, there is one leader on the Republican side who offered, it seems to me, a more encouraging and effective response to President Biden's speech at the State of the Union, his feisty speech at the State of the Union. I think that's the most accurate um, term for it, feisty and combative. Uh, There's a different tone that you'll hear from uh, a U.S. senator a Republican U.S. Senator who actually prepared a, a separate video speech responding to President Biden and responding, it seems to me, with just the right tone. We will get to that and to more. A, uh, a great 
moment in the history of college basketball. We'll get to it and more. Okay, it's winter time, and that shouldn't stop you from going outdoors and enjoying yourself. I'm, of course, deeply honored to receive the Michael Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, uh, is there a lot to do? Uh, the uh, Biden slogan appears to be from his uh, State of the Union speech, finish the job. And uh, remember that Churchill used that phrase. He uh, used that phrase, give us the tools and we will finish the job. They meant to, to finish the job beating Hitler. And we did give them the tools and we did fight alongside them and that job was finished. The job right now that needs to be done to uh, for the American defense posture, for the economy, for our problems with education and crime and border security, you name it. That's not a question of finishing the job. That's a question of making some promising new starts on the job. And that at least is something that is suggested in the um, exceptionally interesting, it seems to me, and impressive uh, speech by Mitt Romney. This is a response to the State of the Union speech by the senator from Utah. Listen. Clip six. The president got off on the wrong foot when he said that some Republicans, he said, want to cut Medicare and Social Security. And there was just an immediate response from our side of the aisle where people said, no, 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 that's just not true. No Republican wants to get rid of Medicare and Social Security of the elected Republicans that I know of, certainly not in the Senate, and uh, no one's proposing lowering the benefits. Um, that was just uh, plain and simple wrong, and I think he, you could probably tell he had to backtrack as he, uh, as he raised that topic and saw such a chorus of response. He also decided to talk about the, uh, the deficit in a way that I thought was a bit disingenuous. He said he's brought the deficit down, and if you look at the math, why, in fact, it's come down. But what he ignored was the reason the deficit was so big before he came into office was we had an emergency plan as a result of COVID. And so money was being spent to help families, hospitals, airlines, businesses, small and large. And we spent a lot of money, trillions of dollars, trying to maintain the American economy. And yeah, that emergency is over, so we're not able to spend that money anymore. And for him to say that somehow he's fought to reduce the deficit is just kind of uh, an exaggeration. Let's put it that way. Okay, and uh, there's more. But the fact is that you can acknowledge that you're on the same team, you want the same things for the country, and still criticize the President of the United States for some of this misleading, fact-checkable elements that... Uh, he included in this speech without uh, without making it a subject for booing and chanting and screams if he's a liar and screams that he had actually uh, put American servicemen in their grave. Really? Uh, there was a, a moment of unanimity, and I think we can actually praise it and celebrate it in the House of Representatives. They passed a resolution... 490 to zero, and nobody voting present, 
It was 419, yes, we passed this resolution, and zero, we're opposed to it. The uh, House passed a resolution condemning China for its brazen violation of the United States sovereignty, that's in quotes, and seeking more information from the White House. Uh, That was the latest development in the spy balloons saga that has gripped Washington since last week. So congratulations on that. And uh, something else that is uh, exceptional and noteworthy and I think is a a good sign is that uh, the New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu has taken his most significant step yet in exploring a White House bid, launching a national political organization that's a popular tool uh, for prospective presidential candidates testing the waters. Sununo is also forming a money-raising group called Live Free or Die. That is the uh, slogan for the state of New Hampshire, through which he can solicit donations of unlimited size. Uh, Will he be a significant participant in the presidential derby? It could be. The guy's impressive, and he has a a real knack for actually winning votes of independents and Democrats, not just Republicans. Uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy also holed in a record $12 million for House Republicans last night as he headlined his first major fundraiser of the 2024 election cycle. The fundraiser was held at the Conrad Hotel and was hosted by longtime McCarthy friend and ally and veteran lobbyist Jeff Miller. And uh, there is this from the world of college basketball. There was a miracle finish in a Division Three basketball game last night. Uh, the New Jersey City... Uh, University Gothic Knights trailed the number 23 Rowan University Profs. I love it. It's a game between the Gothic Knights and the Profs. They trailed by a score of 71 to 67 with 5.2 seconds left in the game. The Knights' Ryan Savoy caught an inbound pass and then hit a turnaround three-pointer to make it a one-point game with 2.8 seconds remaining. On the ensuing play, an inbound pass was deflected, and the Knights' Jason Battle ran the ball down before throwing up a desperation three near half court. Here's what it sounded like play by play. Amazing. 71-67 to score. Inbound, swung around, jump shot. It's good! Ryan Savoy cuts it to one, and AJC has it! Floater, it's good! It's good! Jason Battle at the buzzer! AJCU wins! They stun number 23, Rowan, here at the buzzer! Okay, in, in summary, the Knights overcame a four-point deficit with five seconds left uh, to win in miracle-like fashion. Hard to imagine that there will be comparable excitement uh, in anybody broadcasting the Super Bowl, but you you, you never you never know. Uh, certainly, uh, you never know for sure. Uh, and uh, there is this. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, came 
up with a video message last month urging Republicans to use negotiations over the debt ceiling to scut, cut uh, spending, but not a single penny from Social Security and Medicare. The emphasis reflects potential vulnerability for Republican rivals who were elected to powerful posts in the pre-Trump uh, Tea Party era, embracing austerity and the last showdown over raising the federal debt limit. Okay, what they're talking about here is President Trump, who is going on the attack against potential rivals over Social Security and Medicare, seizing on the same GOP divisions over federal spending that President Biden is seeding to exploit. Trump uh, moved to wield the issue as a wedge in the primary, particularly against Florida Governor uh, Ron DeSantis. That was a, a video message that I suggested was not DeSantis' message. It was Trump's message, which was aimed at DeSantis. And that idea that we can't even talk about the fact that Social Security and Medicare are going bankrupt and approaching insolvency. Well, it's true. And uh, speaking of that, an estimated 27.3 million people watched President Joe Biden's State of the Union address on television. It was the second smallest audience for the annual event in at least 30 years. The Nielsen Company said Wednesday... It was also down nearly 28% from the 38.2 million people who saw Biden's address in 2022. In other words, in 2022, you had 38.2 million people watching. And on Tuesday night, it was 27.3 million people watching. That is a huge fall off and not encouraging news for Democrats who think that, uh, uh, Biden is turning it around. There were also two clever comments by Nancy Mace. She was uh, jabbing her House Republican colleagues at the Washington Press Club Foundation dinner last night. She quipped, you know, you think Republicans aren't funny, but if you get enough of us together, we're a real riot. And then she said, uh, look uh, at the Na Washington Press Club Foundation dinner. To be honest, we all knew Matt Gates wouldn't let the speaker vote get to 18. Think about it, 18 years of age. That and more in this greatest nation on God's green earth. It's gone! It's gone! Face battle at the buzzer! Hi, Fred Dwyer here. If you 